This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. On today's show, you'll learn about the Pet Peace of Mind services from Hospice of San Luis Obispo. For those who do not have a plan for the animal when they're gone, we work with them to develop a plan and to really get to know their animal and get to know the owner's wishes and beliefs. Also, Father Ian explores local cider making on Playing With Food. They have some really weird, wonderful heirloom and cider-specific apples that we have so much fun learning about and fermenting. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, November 27th, 2023. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with Working Lunch. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jim D'Antona, CEO for the San Luis Obispo Chamber of Commerce and your host today, and this is The Working Lunch. The Slow Chamber has formed a direct partnership with KCBX to bring you these Working Lunch discussions. Each month, we will sit down and meet with a member of our community to talk about doing business on the Central Coast. Today, I'm so pleased to be sitting down with Brad Breckwald. Brad is the president and CEO for Wallace Group. Hello, Brad. Thanks for being here today. Hello. For those joining us, Wallace Group is a full-service engineering and construction management company that can provide civil, mechanical, and transportation engineering, construction management, landscape architecture, planning, public works administration, surveying, and water resource services. Wallace Group opened its doors in 1984. Brad joined the team back in 1988 as an engineer and has worked himself all the way up to the CEO role. Wallace is a 100% employee-owned company and have been part of some major projects in our region. So Brad, engineering doesn't seem to be one of those jobs that someone just uh, finds their way into and works their way into. You got to go in with some dedicated intention and education and profession. So that kind of begs the question, uh, was this profession uh, the whole family participated in or were you the family outlier that went this line of work? I would say kind of an outlier since I grew up in a military family and we moved all over the United States. Uh, we moved every one to two years. I think during my father's career, he moved 29 times in 30 years. So having that exposure to many parts of the United States was very beneficial. I think it helped me also understand and study communities, which helped me to get into this profession. Um, I thought I might want to be an aerospace engineer with, like my dad, but when I was in high school, the aerospace industry was dying off. And so I kind of started off in architecture. And I loved buildings. I loved to see things constructed. Uh, after a year of studying that, I did switch to civil engineering just because I felt like I had greater aptitudes at that part of the business. Also, it gave me a, an idea that I might get outdoors more because I was always very interested in being an engineer, but I also wanted to be outdoors and not be stuck behind a desk all day. So that was one reason I decided to become a civil engineer and go to Cal Poly for my education. Can you give us a little, maybe just a quick overview, the difference between a civil engineer and a mechanical engineer? Sure. Uh, it's a kind of an ongoing joke in our company because we have uh, I have partners that are mechanical engineers, but they're also civil engineers. And the joke is they got their degree in mechanical engineering, whereas some of us got our degree in civil engineering. Others got a degree in agricultural engineering, 
architectural engineering. There's a lot of specialties now in engineering. Whereas when my dad graduated, it was just called general engineering. And they had to learn everything, electrical, mechanical, civil, it was all combined. Uh, but when now with uh, the specialties, everybody's kind of diversified. And uh, mechanicals get more into like automobiles or mechanics. Um, in college, we joke it's probably the hardest profession, the hardest major, which I still believe it is. It's one of the hardest to get into at Cal Poly. Um, but civil is what I say is the best because it's the most community-minded. It's indoor-outdoor because not only do we get out and survey, but we get out and do the design. Uh, we get out in the field and we inspect, and we get involved in making decisions about how to design communities, roads, housing, et cetera, that uh, we think are going to be long-lasting. And the other thing we like about this profession is that we get to see our work. So it's not like you're designing in a vacuum and it gets stuck on a shelf somewhere. You actually get out and get to see it in the field. When Walsh Group started, were the, all those specialties there, or has this just really kind of grown into the company's repertoire? Back in 88, when I joined... We had 11 people, both private and public, but we didn't add a lot of our specialty groups until about 95. And that's when we added surveying. We always had a surveyor associated with us, but we actually um, merged with that company and brought them in in 95. We started a planning division. I think that's when we began water resources. And I used to joke about that too, because I always considered civil engineering, water resources, and transportation all under one umbrella. But as time went on, they all became really more specialized. And there's a lot more detail, a lot more regulation for each one of them. So now we have departments within the company that specialize in those areas. And water resources and transportation are two of our largest. I'm sure governments are working through transportation engineering. Uh, but also, more importantly at this point, is water resources and how we're moving the resource throughout the state or through a project, through all of those things, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's a big, big deal. You know, water resources affects everything, just like transportation affects everything. And uh, what's good on both of those fronts is that there's a lot of public agency work now. And, and our work pretty much is from San Benito County all the way down to Ventura for the most part. So we're in three counties. We have an office in Salinas. We have um, a space that we rent down in Santa Barbara. So we have a lot of diversity between our three different uh, counties. When you talk water resources, is it getting water out of the ground? Is it getting wastewater moved? Is it treating facilities or kind of all of those things? It is definitely all of the above. Yeah. Nowadays on water, it's Looking at groundwater, looking at state water, looking at uh, reclaimed water, uh, treating the waste to a high level, tertiary level, so you can actually reuse it, usually for landscaping, for parks, things like that. Um, so we have a real strong group in both water and wastewater that are doing a lot of that in our community. And there's also grants out there. Uh, another area that we're uh, growing in is landscape architecture. We're getting some Prop 68 money, we, not us, but the public agencies, and they're hiring us to redo some of their parks. So, and again, this is happening all up and down all three counties. So our landscape architects are very busy doing a lot of park remodeling and, and working with the civil engineers and making all that happen. You look back 
on your own career. Is there a project that you consider your favorite of your career? There's several, actually, but I spent a lot of my career down in the Pomo area, you know, even starting in college, working on Black Lake, and then after that, Cypress Ridge, and then up through today, Monarch Dunes, which is probably the one that sticks out the most because it's just finished building their last home under the original permits. So that's taken 20 years of, of phased development, and it's been very exciting, and it included everything. Uh, so we did not only the engineering, but we did the surveying, we did the construction management, we did the landscape architecture, um, and these are all departments within the company that are really growing on their own. Well, talk a little bit about surveying and maybe explain to uh, the public real quick what a survey does. Again, I like surveying because it gets you outdoors. It gets you into the beautiful Central Coast weather that we have here. We'll go out with our equipment and determine not only where the boundary is, but the topographic layout of, of the land. So we'll do topographic surveys. We'll do creek and river analysis, lake analysis, figuring out the limits of the low and the high tides. All these have to do with property rights and right-of-ways. And when we're dealing with roads, we've got to figure out the right-of-way of not only our local public roads, but our Caltrans right-of-way so that... We're working within the correct jurisdiction to get our permits. Um, and some of our projects have multiple agencies involved. So we have to work across not only the local cities, but sometimes the city, the county, and then the Caltrans, uh, even other agencies like state agencies, um, Central Coast Water Authority or the uh, regional board. And we have to get permits through Fish and game, fish and wildlife, and so I can go on. There's there's quite a few agencies involved in these projects. It's the state of California, so there's a long <laughs> list of uh, bureaucracies to work through. And surveyors love doing research. I mean, figuring out the actual boundary based on historical landmarks is a big part of a lot of our ranches, especially in this county. Um, and then, you know, are they mapped? Are they recorded? Can we prove that it's a legal lot? You know, sometimes you have to do what's called a certificate of compliance to make sure that the county recognizes it as a legal lot. So there's a lot that goes into surveying that people don't realize. And nowadays, you know, a lot of it's done by GPS units, and scanners, and uh, even drones. So we're picking up surveys with a lot of different means these days. If you're just joining us, I'm Jim D'Antona from the San Luis Obispo Chamber of Commerce, and this is Working Lunch on KCBX. And we are here with Brad Breckwald, the president and CEO of Wallace Group, talking about the issues impacting our county. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how Wallace Group became an employee-owned company. Well, it's a process. I think we started having this discussion in about 99. And uh, in 2003, we actually uh, changed the company's name from John L. Wallace and Associates to Wallace Group because we incorporated and two of us became partners with John. So we have enjoyed the fact that since 2003, we have been bringing on several other shareholders and uh, now we're from three in 2003 to about 38 different shareholders within the company. So we've been selling shares over the last, you know, several years in order to buy out John and to grow the ownership in the company of the employees. So it's been a, a great transition. How does that governance work when you need to decide to make changes in a business when you're an employee-owned business? We have a board of directors. We have regular meetings amongst the principals and the management groups within the company. We collaborate as a group and make sure that we 
can come to consensus on any decision, any change that we got to make. And we've been very successful at doing that. Of course, it was easier when we were only three of us. Uh, now it's, it's getting uh, a little bit more involved, but it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's great because now some of the new shareholders and the younger generation is making decisions and getting involved in decisions that are going to carry us in the future. So we want to continue the legacy of the company beyond us. One of the keys is having the talent, right, to do this work. And do you find having Cal Poly right outside your door helpful to bringing talent in? Oh, definitely. We have several of our employees, including myself, that have taught at Cal Poly over the years. In recent years, they've got a senior design class, and there's a group of us that get involved in that who help out in the lab or teach a lecture. And it's been quite beneficial because then you get not only to get to know the students, but you get to know the professors. And next thing you know, we're finding that uh, that relationships help us in many ways because if we're looking to hire, uh, we go to career fairs, we get to know some of the students through the career fair or through the classes that we've taught. Uh, so we've had a lot of involvement at Cal Poly over the years. And Cal Poly likes that because their motto is learn by doing and bringing in people that are in the business to help teaching those classes have been really beneficial. Has talent acquisition and retention been more difficult over the last few years compared to the past? You know, it's always been a bit of a challenge just because San Luis is a desirable place and there's not a lot of opportunity historically. Uh, It's become actually more desirable now, but the cost of living has gone up so much, and therefore it's hard to find talent and bring them here. Uh, especially with the high cost of housing and everything else that you got to deal with. So you work with people that are able to make it work, come in and start small, you know, do a fixer-upper or start in a condo or whatever it takes, and hopefully they engage enough and want to live here so they invest in the community like like most of us have done over the years. And it does take a while. But uh, in the last two months, we've been very fortunate. We've been able to find four new employees and a couple of them are senior level, so we're just really excited right now. Congratulations, yeah. Part of all of our working lunch programs, we talk about our family-friendly workplace, what companies are doing to meet the challenge of retaining workforce. And Wallace Group this year advanced to Blue Diamond level, our highest level award in the family-friendly workplace awards. Um, And your team recently shared a flyer for recruitment that said, quality of life at Wallace Group, we understand that family comes first. Have you found that message as something that draws potential employees in this, uh, the new ones you got, or helps retain your team? Uh, Definitely on the retention side of things. On the recruitment side, I would say it depends on the individual that's looking to find a job. So if you're just starting right out of college, you're looking for the right job and the right types of projects and how are you going to get trained and mentored and everything else. So that's really important for a lot of younger employees, whereas the more mid and senior level are looking for, they want to move their family here, their kids want to go to school here. So uh, are we going to accommodate them in a work-life balance? And this is something that we've been focusing on as part of our retention program is how do we deal with childcare? I mean, during the Oh, man. COVID, it was terrible. So everybody was struggling. So we gave uh, a lot of people a lot of flexible hours. Uh, Many of our people work remotely. And we've carried that program forward to where now we have a hybrid model. Uh, We have a wellness program where we actually provide uh, stipends to people who need help in child care. Um, And we 
provide benefits to others, like that covers some of their medical bills or dental bills and other things beyond their normal health insurance that we give them. So we're trying to provide a program that gives them a good work-life balance and allow the flexibility where people can get out, exercise, get out of the office. Like I said, I like getting outdoors, so I'm one of those. And so when I get get out and get some exercise and clear my mind, it helps me work better the next day or the next hour. Yeah, it's really great. You said you were at about 11. You got to be somewhere north 60, 70 or something. We're we're about 70 people right now. So I always like to end uh, with a little bit of future forecasting for our region. You know, Wallace Group is in a special place because you are seeing projects in the very early idea stages, whether that's private or public. When you look into the next two to five years for our regional economy, how do you see that? I think it's a mix. Both public and private projects will continue. I think the private side has taken a bit of a hit, especially on the smaller end of things, because the interest rates are so high and it's limiting you know, the ability to build and sell homes as much, even though we still lack inventory. So they're still moving, but we've got to find a way to keep the private sector engaged and moving forward and building more homes. I uh, just attended the Central Coast Economic Forecast, and basically the keynote speaker was saying, we need more multifamily. And he's really focused on the fact that our younger generation and workforce need a place to live. And that's true in both Santa Barbara, San Luis, and Monterey County. So that's a, a real focus area, and that'll keep the private sector going. As far as the public sector, there's a lot going on right now in the transportation and the water f- fields even in the wastewater arena. So uh, a lot of agencies are wanting to upgrade their plants so they can have higher treated water and reuse it, which benefits local groundwater basins as well as it allows for an opportunity to not to use potable water for non-potable uses. And so that's a big deal. Uh, and there's grants and federal and state funds that come along to help that happen, uh, as well as on the transportation side. So I, I think there's a need to get more monies in for transportation. That's something this county is lacking, and it could be something that could really help benefit us because as people see the traffic increase at peak hour, they're going, well, this needs to be widened or this needs to be fixed, and it's all true. It needs to happen. It's going to take a regional effort from both the state and federal government to help this county get there. I know from the slow chamber side, we agree 100% on all those, the infrastructure, the housing. So I want to thank you, Brad, so much for joining us today and sharing some of your thoughts. On behalf of Brad Breckwald of Wallace Group, KCBX, I'm Jim D'Antona for the San Luis Obispo Chamber of Commerce. We hope you have an amazing week. Keep making our community a wonderful place to live. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast, and you're listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, peace, love, and pets. I'm Robin with Woods Humane Society. My guest today is Shannon McCowett and Tony Huffaker with Hospice of San Luis Obispo. Shannon is the executive director for Hospice Slow County, and Tony Huffaker has been the counseling director for Hospice Slow County since 2010. Welcome to Peace, Love, and Pets, you guys. 
Thank you. you. I'm happy to have you here. And we've worked together in the community for many years. And I think some listeners may be interested to hear how we work together and how we service similar uh, needs in the community and how we serve different needs in the community. So I am going to ask you, Shannon, to start by just giving our listeners an overview of what you do at Slow Hospice and some of the programs and services and how you can support the community. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So Hospice Slow County, we are a non-medical volunteer hospice and community grief center. We believe that the end of life deserves as much respect as the beginning, and we support all San Luis Obispo County residents who are grieving a death or coping with a life-limiting illness or facing the end of life. We are one of four hospices in San Luis Obispo County, but we are the only non-medical hospice. In fact, we are one of only 17 non-medical hospices left in the country. And so San Luis Obispo County, in my humble opinion, is incredibly lucky to have such amazing support between ourselves and the medical hospices available in our community. And so Hospice Low County supports the community in working with those near the end of life and the people who love them by providing in-home support, caregiver respite, grief counseling, support groups, community grief response, and education. All of our services are provided at no charge, and we do not bill insurance. So we depend 100% on community donations, fundraising, grants, bequests, planned gifts, and of course, the time and talent of our amazing volunteers who provide the support to our clients and the community. Wow. Well, that's a lot. Thank you so much for sharing. And I don't think a lot of people know that you have an amazing program that I got to be a part of several years back. It's called the Your Pet Peace of Mind program. And I really wanted our listeners to be able to hear more about the program. So Pet Peace of Mind is actually an international program that was developed specifically for hospices. And the idea is that we train volunteers to go into homes and help support the animals so the animals can stay with their owners, their humans, through their owner's end of life. And so a lot of times, I'm going to use dogs as an example, Um, as the owners and their caregivers are um, really becoming more and more unable to take care of the animals, get them out for walks, get them to the vet appointments, get them to the groomers, Um, the volunteers come in and can help with that, can get those dogs taken for walks, transport them to the vets, transport them to the groomers, and really provide that additional love and support um, and care for those animals so the animals can stay in the homes. Because as we all know, and as we all understand, the pets are members of that family. And they are a huge support and a huge piece of that unconditional love. And it's so important to keep that family unit together, especially through the end of life, Um, not just for the human, but also for the animal. That's where we come in. For those owners who do not have a plan for the animal when they're gone, We work with them to develop a plan and to really get to know their animal and get to know the owner's wishes and beliefs for the animal about where they would want their animal to go. Mm -hmm. And we 
work with them to develop a plan. And then upon their death, Hospice Low County takes ownership of the animal, we foster and rehome it. Now we cannot do that for all animals in the community at large. We do that specifically for our clients who we've built a relationship with and we've developed a plan of care for their animal. And that's where that pet peace of mind concept comes in because we do not want families to have to remove the animal from the home too soon or what a lot of people have done in the past is actually put their animals down Mm. too soon Uh. because they just can no longer care for them or don't know what to do or have nowhere for that animal to Mm. go. And so that's where we can really step in and help provide that care, keep them together, and then really provide that peace of mind that that animal will be cared for beyond. Wow, what a great program and what a great service. And I see a different side of that where unfortunately we do see so many animals end up at county shelters, at woods, because they have not made any plans. They have maybe either been in denial or it just wasn't something that family was comfortable bringing up. It is so important for people to have those conversations. Can you go a little bit more into detail on if someone is interested in becoming a volunteer specifically for the Pet Peace of Mind program? Absolutely. So you can um, visit our website, hospicesl.org, and go to the volunteer tab, and you can fill out uh, forms expressing interest, and then we will email you information. You can call our number at 805 544 2266 and ask to speak to our volunteer manager and express interest. We will be offering a pet peace of mind volunteer training in the new year. I do not have specific dates at this moment, but if you contact us and give us your information, we will um, put you on the list to be notified as soon as we have those dates available. And what kind of commitment is it time-wise? And is it mostly cats and dogs? It is mostly cats and dogs. I mean, we've had some other animals and it all depends on, you know, volunteer availability and what the volunteers um, kind of background and skill set and what their interest is. We really work hard, especially in Pet Peace of Mind, to match a volunteer with a client who is close in proximity to where they live. We're wanting and hoping that they will stop by more often. Mm. So the visits are not as long as Mm. with a a human client, um, but maybe, you know, popping in more often throughout the week, like maybe a few times a week going and taking them for a walk or, you know, and then every once in a while there's a transport to a veterinarian appointment or a grooming appointment. So again, we're very flexible and typically the max, any of our volunteers, regardless of what they're doing, is a max of four hours a week. Okay. And then what about fostering? Do you, uh, do you also have some volunteers that I'm assuming if somebody yes. goes into like hospital or something comes up, are you looking for people who can foster owned pets? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. If you're interested in fostering an animal, you can contact us. We keep a list of fosters. And then if an animal is needing uh, some temporary foster, we'll reach out to the foster list. 
So this is a whole nother opportunity. If you are a animal lover out there and wanting to do good and give back, but maybe volunteering at a shelter is just not your cup of tea, this is such a great opportunity. Because with shelter animals, you don't always know their background. You don't know their personality. Are they going to be jumping? Are they like going to like men? Are they going to like kids? But when you're helping a loved pet and you have some information from the owner or the family, you know their personality. You know their likes, their dislikes. I feel like that's a very easy way to step into possibly fostering um, and supporting people and pets in the community. What a great program. I just cannot thank you enough for offering it. I wanted to just remind you, if you are just joining us, this is KCBX Public Radio. You are listening to Issues and Ideas. I'm Robin from Woods Humane Society, and my guests today are Shannon and Tony from Hospice of Slow. And Tony is here to give us your expertise. You have given your life to grief and supporting people with loss and counseling when it comes to pet loss and aging pets. I know that you either hear from people, oh, it's just a cat or dog, you know, move on. Mm -hmm. Or you hear, it's like the worst loss that I have gone through is losing my cat or dog that I have had for 15 years. So you hear everything in between. Of course, you're focused a lot on people and grief and Mm -hmm. families, but pets are a big part of those families and especially in this community. So I would love for you to share your insights. Sure, sure. Before I get started, let me just say, wonderful organization, Woods. We adopted a dog from Woods um, years ago with my daughter when she was in school. Tremendous experience. He was a little difficult to manage at first, Woods was tremendously supportive. We called back and said, oh, what do we do? Great input. You know, was able to make that relationship work. He was with us for many, many years before we ultimately had to euthanize him. So I just want to word out about Woods. I love to hear those stories. Going into what you're saying, Robin, yeah, I think one of the biggest things that we have to think about is it's that idea that losing a pet is really what we call a disenfranchised grief. And so it's the idea that there are certain types of grief that society as a large just says don't count. And so we don't honor it, we don't respect it, we don't validate it. Just generally, like say if somebody miscarries, that grief is often discounted. We can just have another kid. Mm. And with dogs, cats, pets, it's like, oh, well, it's only a dog, it's only a cat, that type of thing. So when we say what's the first thing that we can do for people who've lost an animal, we can really acknowledge that everybody's loss is different. There's no, uh, one person can lose an animal and, and recover from that pretty quickly and be okay. Somebody else can lose an animal and be devastated. And so we really need to acknowledge, first of all, that how everybody reacts is different based on their life, their other loss experiences. And the next thing we can do is really acknowledge the loss um, rather than disenfranchising a loss. The one thing you get from people is it's only a dog. The other thing you get from people is, oh, well, let, let's get them another dog. Let's mm-hmm. get them another cat. As if they weren't individuals and like that they're they're just, they're just you know they're they're units okay here's yeah here's unit. right exactly and for some people that's fine but we don't know mm-hmm. so let's respect and listen to what our friend neighbor uh, congregation member is saying and support them in that rather than say oh well, this is what you should do you right. should do this we like to do that don't we like yeah. we oh, like people people <laughs> like love to do that you just need to get a hobby you know whatever it, people do all sorts of, it's amazing um, as we say when we do groups at hospice number four on the list of uh, on the list of the group guidelines. Giving advice is not a function of the group, but sharing experiences that have aided you may be helpful to others. So, yeah, if we can, first of all, listen to our friends and family, support them, but not tell them, you know, what they need to do. Um, You know, I think the other thing uh, that we really need to acknowledge, um, there's a lot of research going on now 
in the brain and in neurology with grief. Uh, Mario Francis O'Connor has a book that's been out a year or two now, The Grieving Brain. Um, and one of the things she talks about is, you know, from the time of toddlerhood, we kind of map where people who are important to us are, mm-hmm. you know, mentally. It's sort of like, okay, where are they? And when someone dies, uh, you can't find – they're not here and they're not there. They're nowhere, and that's very difficult. And so, again, with an animal who you may be with, you know, especially if it's a companion animal, maybe it's someone who's a retiree and is home a great deal, you may be with that animal more than you are with other people mm-hmm. – that loss of that animal really has some neurological consequences mm-hmm. for people. You know, your brain is really going, what is up with this? You know, how can we how can we do that? I think one of the other things that's really unique, so often with animals, just like with people now, it's so much more common that as they near the end of their life, uh, we euthanize them. Mm-hmm. Rather, like Just like in the old days, people died of a heart attack and fell over, and now we have CPR, and we have ambulances, mm-hmm. and we have these things. So people tend to live longer, and we have to make decisions about what we want our end of life to look like. So often with animals, you know, we reach a point where they really have to be euthanized. And as hard as that is with people, and I've certainly had this experience with with our dog, it's so much harder with an animal. You can't communicate with them. You can't say, "Hey, what do you think? How are you feeling about mm-hmm. this?" You know, it's it's your is it's, the right decision. What, what's is it your time? what's your yeah. quality of life? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. and so um, very very hard for folks. I very rarely ever had anybody come to grief counseling anyway who says, "Oh yeah, I felt this was exactly the right time." Mm-hmm. And people can really do it either way too. We have people say, "Oh, I did that too early," mm-hmm. but then we have people who say, "Oh, I held on too long." You know, I, I hear love, a I, lot of yeah. that, that. You know, they kept them longer for themselves mm-hmm. than they probably should have looking back. I think we probably all can understand that. And you're right. I so it's like, I wish you could tell me. I wish you could just tell me if it's time. I wish you could just tell me if you want to still hang on. I hear like, oh, they still wagged their tail. They must still be happy. Or, oh, they're still eating, you know. But yeah, you, you do have to make that decision for them. And it's definitely not easy. Very difficult for people. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, again, I think to support people and let them know, hey, it's it's uh, counseling is a perfectly valid option for people who've lost an animal, just like people who've lost a parent or lost a child. It's perfectly legitimate. You've got a loss. We don't compare losses. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't compare the loss of a child, the loss of a parent, loss of a pet. We say everybody's had a loss. Everybody's welcome to come get counseling. And that's certainly something, you know, that we offer at Hospice Slow for people. Being at Woods for almost 10 years, I have heard everything from adopters. Sometimes they come in the day they euthanize an animal. They just said, I cannot go home to an empty house. I cannot do it. And sometimes I hear people say, it's been five years since I've had a dog. I, I, and I'm just like, I just feel ready now. And we hear everything in between. As we do encourage people just to be sure that you're not looking to replace mm-hmm. the animal that you've lost. Yeah. When you, you know, There's no harm in, in getting another animal right away as long as you're clear, I think, that this is not a replacement. Tell us about the upcoming Pet Remembrance Ceremony. Please, Shannon, tell us about this wonderful event coming up. Yes, we have Pause to Remember, and it is a special ceremony in memory of lost pets. And it is happening Wednesday, December 6th, at 6 p.m. and it's uh, taking place at the office of Hospice Slow County and we're located at 1304 Pacific Street in San Luis Obispo. And during the Pause to Remember ceremony, we read the names of departed pets out loud and it's a really beautiful ceremony that includes poetry, candle lighting, sharing of stories, So you can learn more at our website at hospicesla.org. 
And the Pause to Remember ceremony is a part of our annual Light Up a Life offering throughout the county. But this particular one we do for the pets in our lives. Just the candlelight glow and the calm, sweet healing energy. If you can't make it, you can still participate and the animal's name will still be read and you send the commemorative ornament. You can do that in honor or memory of somebody, which is a great holiday gift. It's December 6th coming up. More information on your website. You can make a small donation, have the animal's name read, get that little sweet ornament is anything else we want to mention, guys, that I overlooked about the organization or how people can get involved? Do you have a social media page that people can follow? We do. We have an account on Facebook and we're also on Instagram at Hospice Slow County. Okay. I think you can find us yeah, that so, okay. way. So website or social media is a great place to get yep. more information and upcoming events, ways people can get involved and support. Well, thank you so much for coming. Tony, anything you want to add? Just thank you so much. It's really a topic that doesn't get talked about enough, and I'm glad to uh, have the chance. As we wrap up here, I want to thank my guests, Shannon and Tony from Hospice of Slow, for joining us. I want to end with letting our listeners know that Giving Tuesday is right around the corner, a big day for nonprofits all over the nation. Giving Tuesday is the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, and so many wonderful, generous community members have made it a day after the retail shopping, after eating all the food, after the Cyber Monday. What else is better than to give back to a worthy cause? So whether it's public radio, whether it's Hospice of Slow, whether it's Woods Humane Society, please consider supporting these organizations. We quite honestly cannot do it without your support. So if you can make a donation this holiday season, please find a local charity that you love and support and let us do more good out in that community. We are also celebrating Senior Pet Month at Woods. So great time to remember those senior pets that are waiting in shelters. Seven and older are fee waived through the entire month of November. So we still have a little bit of time to save some of those senior pets. Thank you for listening to Peace, Love and Pets on KCBX. I'm Robin with Woods and don't forget your new best friend is waiting for you at the shelter. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, Playing with Food. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. When I was in my 20s, in the harsh winters of San Jose, California, on a cold, dark night, I would get out the apple cider and make myself a warming adult beverage. It was my trusted hot buttered rum recipe that I actually only really made for my pre-Christmas dinner party. It was apple cider, not juice, with some warming spices, a glug of rum, and a slick of butter on top. Delicious. But then, my move to Britain opened up the world of hard cider. I was largely unimpressed. Until now. The craft cider movement on the Central Coast is producing cider where every barrel is unique in flavor and character. I just had to explore more, and I started in the orchard and went all the way to the bottle. How are you? Good morning. Hi, good morning. Come on in. Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to the Two Broads Orchard that we lease from the Slow Land Conservancy. My name is Maggie Probilski. I am one of the owners and operators of Two Broads Cider Works in San Luis Obispo, California. 
So this is your orchard? Well, we're leasing it from the Land Conservancy, but we do care for all of the trees that are here. We don't own the trees, but we are allowed to pick the apples off and use them. These are 20-year-old Braeburn trees. There's also a couple crab apples mixed in for pollination, and I think they mixed in some Granny Smith for pollination as well. And then there's this mystery tree that has this really dark skin that gets this yeast bloom on it that makes it look purple but nobody can tell me what it is because there's no records we also don't know what the rootstock is but we're pretty sure these are dwarf that means we don't have to use any ladders and that's just safer for everyone so you're out here picking apples and what are you going to do with them we're going to squish them and make them into cider not fresh cider we're going to ferment it i'll make it into adult beverage so we're here on a foggy cold fall morning mm. picking at well we're here and you're picking apples. <laughs> I'll pick a couple apples. Does it require special skills? It kind of requires you to know that if you pick an apple wrong, you will have trouble getting more fruit off that tree. When you're picking an apple, you want to grasp it gently and you want to pull it up toward the spur. The spur is where the fruit is coming off. If you break the spur, you could affect your ability to, to grow apples on that spur next year. Oh, so you do have to know what you're doing. You do have to know what you're doing, yeah. Um, that being said, sometimes when it's really ripe, ripe, it'll just like fall right off the tree. Like that one did. Yeah, but if, let's say, you see how I'm pulling the apple up uh -huh. back toward the branch? Yeah. Usually that's enough if it's ready to go. Right, okay. This one, this not one not, well, I'm still going to take it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't, in order to be efficient, you got to also think of efficiency while you're out here. We mostly just don't have the time to go back and forth around the orchard. We, we do need to pick it all at once. It might take us a few weeks, but they'll still be good. Some of them will be a little under, but that's fine. We like a good acidic apple, and some of them will be really sugary by the time we get to the end, because they're still ripening on the tree over the two weeks that we're picking. How many apples will you get? In the past, We've gotten around three tons and change. This orchard does need a lot more care and restoration. There is some fire blight in it, and that doesn't affect the taste of the apples, but it does affect the health of the tree. And fire blight is the kind of disease where you have to take the wood out of the orchard. Otherwise, you risk reinfecting healthy trees. This is like orchard to orchard to bar. Usually we say orchard to bottle. How important is that to you? We really like having an idea of where everything comes from. It, it gives us a better relationship with our product and then we can communicate that to our customers when they come in. I'll pick a couple apples. Yeah, Let me okay. see if I can do this right. Yeah. Everything that's red on this tree has to go? Yeah, absolutely. The spur's right here. That's at the top of the apple. Kind of, oh, there you go. It just came, it just came exactly. off. Exactly. It's ready. So are you like doing a whole tree regardless of how ripe the apples are? Or are you going through and getting the most ripe ones and then tomorrow you'll come back and get the next ripe ones? Or We're going to go methodically just so that we know we've hit every tree. That's why we try to take everything off the tree. Even if we're not going to take it back to the cider works with us, we'll at least put it on the ground because then we know we're not going back to the same row okay. and wasting time. Okay, well, I'll give this a try. Yeah. Okay. Look at that cute, that's a cute little spider. <laughs> Do you just not like to be surprised by them? I just don't like spiders because they, they kill people. They can. <laughs> Most of them don't though. There's two kinds of pruning you can do to a tree. And you can do winter pruning, which will invigorate the tree. Or you can do summer pruning, which will shape the tree. So whatever you accidentally pull off, we're going to call that summer pruning. 
<laughs> but still, we want to try to keep the spurs intact as much as possible so we get fruit next year. Okay. <laughs> we don't pick up grounders because we don't have this area fenced very well to keep the animals out. And we want to reduce the amount of, you know, pathogens that could pass to people, even though our method of fermentation probably kills most of those. After picking the apples, it was time for the next step. These are gala apples from an organic farm in Santa Barbara County, Kuyama Orchards. So I get up at five o'clock in the morning and I drive out there when the packing house gets open at like eight. And it's a gorgeous drive because the sun is coming up and a nice quiet time. I pick up the apples from them and then I bring them home and they fill the cellar and they make the cellar smell amazing. I invite people to go back there and huff my apples when I have apples back there. <laughs> just take, just like, really breathe it in really breathe it in we like to use organic apples because we don't like to peel which is very labor intensive and we feel better about using organic apples when we are making cider how many different types of apples do you use oh i want to say we're a lot there's i mean i want to say maybe 30 to 40 varietals that we've worked with before we are very lucky to have some local orchard enthusiasts who are like hey you want our apples we're like yeah you want some cider? And they're like, yeah. So they have some really funky, weird, wonderful heirloom and cider specific variety apples that we have so much fun learning about and fermenting and just seeing what happens. There is some predictability in what we do, but a lot of it is a surprise to us. And it just makes it really interesting and fun. <laughs> are each of your ciders varietal specific? We can do that, like wine. We're going to do an all-gala apple cider, but blending is what you see most often in the cider industry because you want to balance the acid and the tannin and the alcohol together. And sometimes there's residual sugar in cider. We don't typically make that type because we like it dry. We'll do all the blends, native fermentation, a pitched yeast fermentation, barrel fermentation, barrel aging. And this is our bin dumper. We got it from Deep Dark, Oregon, and we trucked it back on a trailer on the back of our mini, a thousand miles, a thousand pounds. It doesn't end up fitting normal bins. So we had to like figure out who had the right bins to fit the bin dumper. Everybody else is using like a square macro bin, but this is like a rectangular collapsible bin. So this works for us. Half of this business is logistics. I should say a quarter of it is logistics, quarter of it is cleaning, a quarter of it is paperwork, and a quarter of it is cider making. So we just look at so many apples, but I end up always marveling at how pretty they are. I'm like, all right, everybody, because we get a crew, pull out the prettiest, the largest, the smallest, the weirdest apples, because I really just enjoy that aesthetic part of it. The stainless steel will make a chute and a cage. It's got two pistons on the side and it is a hydraulic run machine. We have to hook it up to the extra port on our forklift to run it. The pistons push the bottom up and it rotates so that all the apples start to fall into the chute and we're gonna put a water bath right there and then we'll move the sorting table next to the water bath and then line up all the apples over here which will go into the mill which is that thing with the yellow hopper over there. Down at the bottom of the yellow hopper it's filled with spinning knives and it turns the apples into coleslaw. Okay. And then those go into the presses, the bladder presses right there which are a big cylindrical cage that's lined with a press cloth. And in the middle is a rubber bladder that fills 
up with water and presses the apple pulp out to the side. So this big bin, which is almost a cubic yard, 40 by 48, mm -hmm. filled with apples, mm -hmm. is going to be rotated to 90 degrees, mm -hmm. which will allow it to be dumped into the process that you mm -hmm. that you just described. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian at Two Broad Cider Works, learning how to turn apples in the orchard into an adult beverage that is tasty and full of flavor. We're in the middle of sorting apples, and then it's on to, as Two Broads puts it, turning them into coleslaw. So today we're filling this. A lot of our tanks are full, and we have a lot more apples than we need, but sometimes we need juice later in the year. So we put it in this IBC. It's called an IBC sensor intermediate bulk container. But once you know what it is, it's like a prop on every sci-fi show. It's so funny. They hold about a thousand liters, so we can pump juice into that and put it in storage until we're ready to use the juice. And then tomorrow we're gonna fill one of our tanks and start fermenting that one right away. So if you're storing it, doesn't it ferment while it's storing? It can, but we will freeze it and that keeps it fresh and then when we're ready we take it out and thaw it. And that's actually how we make a style of cider sometimes called ice cider which is made with frozen. Basically once the juice is thawing as it thaws more concentrated juice thaws first and we use that first bit to make like a really strong dessert cider called ice cider. That's really good. So you said you use organic apples mm -hmm. because you don't have to peel them, but what does that mean in terms of pests and things that might be in the apples? What we worry about mostly during the process is mold. Bugs are just protein. We like to call them micronutrients. So we don't mind if there's the little hole and there's a little worm inside there because if there was anything dangerous in that animal, the acid and the alcohol would take care of it. But yeah, mold is our primary concern. Is that pretty standard in the industry to not worry about pets? Yeah, it is. And that's why we're allowed to use seconds. Everybody's idea about what good fruit is is so narrow that sometimes people will look at an apple like this that has gashes or an apple that has bruises or an apple that has a, a wormhole in it and reject it. So when you say you sort apples, does that mean you actually touch every single apple? We do. Yeah. We used to be really slow at first, but the more you do it, the faster you get. So you just, you take your hands, you look down at the apples you're going to grab, you grab them, you turn them over and you check them. And then you chuck them in the good pile or the bad pile. I would chuck this into the cut pile. That way you can cut the section off the apple, toss it in the good pile, and then the bad part of the apple go to compost. We're trying to reduce waste. Absolutely. We will start with our apples. Gala apples, Kuyama Orchard. They are organic. We will be washing them and sorting them. If y'all want to come a little closer, I'll show you kind of what we're looking to keep. We don't, we don't mind a little bit of sunburn. We don't mind a fresh cut as long as it's fresh. What we do mind is anything that might have mold in it. Anything that starts to look blue or anything that starts to look like it's affecting the outside of the skin because that means the infection is getting more involved in the fruit. And what we do with these is we throw them in the crates under the sorting table for cutting later. If you can't save more than half the apple, we just compost that. I don't think we're gonna find anything gross like that in here. You know, if the apple's like turning to applesauce in it, or it's mm. got like a ton of mold on it, we would definitely compost that. Doesn't look like these are gonna be too labor intensive as far as cutting is concerned. Okay, so we're gonna hook the forklift up to the bin dumper. The bin dumper is going to rotate 
and all the apples are going to come out of the chute and into the wash basin. So I'm not sitting on the seat enough. And then somebody will scoop them out, fill the sorting table with them, and then we'll sort the good apples into the lugs, which are the elongated crates there. This is fine because it's a fine. We'll stage those on the way to the mill, which is that yellow hopper thing. And then that will turn the apples into coleslaw. and then we will bucket those into the press. And Morgan typically runs the presses and she will do a lot of the, the milling as well. If you're ever part of making cider, make sure you taste the raw product. Trust me, it's worth it. Nothing like fresh squeezed juice. Okay, so what is this? This is the, the gala juice that just came off the presses. Okay. Mmm, I've never tasted apple juice that like fresh. that. This is not the treetop stuff in the carton nope. at all. Not at all. This is not <laughs> frozen concentrate reconstituted apple juice mm -mm. that I grew up on. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, this is the close you're going to get to right off the farm as, as you can, even though the farm is, you know, a couple hundred miles away, but... <laughs> when did you pick them up? I got them on Friday morning. And today's Saturday. And today's so Saturday. Are 24 and... hours old. Yeah, I think they picked them. They maybe picked them the day before. They maybe picked them on Thursday. I'm continuing to drink this, and I don't. I'm not an apple juice fan. Uh, you're not. Um, <laughs> but I'm not an apple juice fan because of the apple juice that I grew up drinking. Yeah. Like this is this is real apple juice. It's. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just so fresh. It, I guess it just goes to show you how much better tasting fresh is. So this juice I just drank. What's going to happen to it next? We are going to put it in an IBC, and we're actually going to send this juice off to storage. But um, we're also saving some of it because we're working with a local business. We're going to make an exclusive cider for their new shop. So some of this juice is going to go into that special batch for them. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, making cider with Maggie and Morgan at Two Broad Cider Works. I've picked apples in the orchard, I've washed and sorted apples, I've chopped apples and squeezed their juice into a bin. I didn't do the fermenting part. Staring at bunged up barrels doesn't make good radio. So I'm now skipping to the good part. Tasting. Uh, so my name's Jason, and I say I'm a cider hand here at Two Broad, so I mainly tend to the bar. And then I also help with production as well as really anything else that Maggie and Morgan might need. Well, you just brought a tray of urine samples and, and placed them yes. in front of me. Tell us what we've got here. So we have a few different types of cider here. We have our bridge block cider, which is 100% apples. And that comes from our own orchard that we have on the San Luis Obispo floodplains down on the river. It's very nice. The apples are quite fresh and they have a very nice tartness to them. Secondly, we have what I call K-May, kumquat may, which is a fruit style cider where we co-ferment the apples with kumquats great acidity and some great citrusy freshness as well. Third on the list is our Bearded Queen. This is a botanical style cider. We call it Bearded Queen because it has hops in it and that hops add a wonderful resinous texture and flavor to the richness of the apples that we use. Great, well I have my friend Hans here with me. Hans, you are very familiar with all of these ciders, correct? Correct. I love coming here. I come here regularly and I'm friends with both Maggie and Morgan. How do we start? 
All right, well, we got some little flasks here, so I'll pour one each for you guys. It smells like apples. I sure hope so, friend. <laughs> be worried if it didn't. Be very concerned otherwise. Okay, here we go. It's nice, it's crisp and clean. It looks yellow it and is. it tastes <laughs> yellow. Does that make any sense? It does. Yellow is a color. I normally associate that with sharpness or acidity. Especially with apples and cider, we have a pronounced acidity from the malic acid present in the apple. It gives you a nice tartness. It almost makes your mouth water like you want to consume food with your cider. Next up, we have our kumquat mei. So like I mentioned, kumquat mei is going to be co-fermented with kumquats. So what co-ferment means is that we crush the apples and the kumquats together so that their juices are mixed throughout the entire process and then they're fermented together as well. Okay, here we go. Wow, very different. You can really smell the kumquats though. Like it really comes through in the nose. So this is arguably one of my favorite ciders, Bearded Queen. We use hops in it as well. Much like you make beer, you steep the fluid in hops and just give it a nice resinous flavor. It adds just a lot of fun texture, a lot of green, masticky, I say resinous a lot. The compounds are terpenes, which is just a very fun compound. You find them in Gewürztraminers as well as other German-style white wines. You'll get on the nose, it does smell like Ooh. an apple IPA. Yeah, it does. Absolutely yeah. amazing. It's. I like this one because I like hoppy beers. Next up is also one of my favorite ciders. So we call this No Fret Piquette, and it is a blend of cider and wine. Okay, that's right interesting. Time. And then you'll see in the flask to my right, we have the actual wine. So last year's blend had a little bit of Movedra and Grenache in it. This year's blend, we're looking at having Grenache and Syrah. And what I'm pouring here is the Grenache that we actually just finished off. What's this final one? This is Frost. Frost is a dessert-style cider, so it is going to be semi-dry. can't legally call it an ice cider because it was okay. not frozen naturally. So we call it an ice-style cider, which is where you take your juice and you freeze it. And then as it thaws, you take off the sweetest layer and you keep pulling off until you get to basically a water layer that has less sugar in it. And you take the really sweet and you ferment that instead. So that's why you end up with a cider that's about 16.1% in alcohol because we've actually halved the amount of volume that the sugar was dissolved in through the freezing process. It does see some French oak as well. So if you do smell it a little bit, you will get these nice, very rich, caramely apple notes it's almost like a rum. Wow, very, there's a lot very, going on in this glass. Very nicely aged. You can smell the agedness to it. It's really nice, but my unsophisticated palate couldn't even begin to tell you what's going on in this glass. Cider's really fun. It's definitely an up and coming thing that we're finding in the Central Coast. Got a lot more orchards popping up everywhere. And with that comes a little bit more of a nuanced cider just around the area. So, you know, drink cider. This experience was the first time I enjoyed drinking hard cider. Each one of those ciders had a complex bouquet of flavors and aromas that led to a pleasant tasting experience. There are about 20 cider works between Monterey and Oxnard. That gives you plenty of opportunities to explore the good work on the Central Coast and the orchard-to-bottle brilliance all around us. 
This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, and I'm playing with food. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Mm-hmm.